this is going to be here after I'm gone. This yeah. is recorded for posterity. And I would like to be remembered as a classy Dane. <laughs> Welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast, a podcast where we talk about show business, old friends, and new adventures. We're headed into a little summer recess. I will be working on new episodes. Each episode takes a little bit of time to edit and get ready. So I just want to take some time this summer to have a good summer, work a little bit, I have some gigs. I saved a really great guest as our season finale. This is my friend, Billy Johnstone. Billy is an actor, a director, choreographer, acting coach. He does so much. Let me know what your favorite episode was. Hey, Billy, thanks for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. It is my pleasure to be on the showgirl tip of the day because she helps you find your way. Well, I try. So Billy and I are really good friends. So this will be interesting because how many years, we know Michelle? each other. How many years? I want to say 15 years now. 15, yeah. 15 years. That. Yeah. You can tell everybody the moment that we met. Yes. First, I love that story. <laughs> but first, let's talk about your early career. You grew up in New Britain, Connecticut, and yes. you used to take the bus to see Broadway shows. Sometimes you used to take the bus without anybody knowing that you were oh, taking the bus. Are you ratting me out now? Kind of. So I might get in you trouble. used to cut school, didn't no, you? No, I wouldn't cut school. No, I wouldn't cut school. I would go on a weekend. And where did your college. parents I think cut you... college once to take the bus from Boston really? to New York City when Lori Beachman was in Les Mis. The only time I skipped wow. college. Yeah. Wow. And where did you go to college? The Boston Conservatory. That's fantastic. I love Boston. It's a wonderful city. So tell us about your early, tell us about someone that lived in your house who helped you out. Let's talk about the man that was a tenant in your family's yes. apartment building. Well, I live or I lived and I do live now again in a six family house that my great grandparents, when they came over from Italy at a very young age, were the first tenants in this house. And family has lived in this house ever since. So like my grandfather must have been 10, I think, when he lived here. And there were aunts and uncles. And my mother was born here. And we were born here, my sister and I. And then my nephews and now my grandnephew. I mean, so it's, it's always, has, always has been in the house for years or in the family for years. And we had one person who was non-family who lived here, who was an original tenant on the third floor in actually the apartment I'm in right now. And he was here with his family. I think he was young boy. He must've been like my grandfather's age or maybe a little old, maybe a little older or a little younger. And he lived here. And I remember him when I was, you know, growing up and he apparently told my parents that I had some sort of talent in theater. Cause I always sang, I always danced. I always, but I didn't think of it as a career, you know? So he, 
kind of got me involved in the theater. And that's how it all started, pretty much. But still, I had no aspirations of doing it for a living. I had no idea you could do it. Didn't he benefactor a church? Yeah, we had a church, St. Anne's Church, which is pretty much in walking distance. And all of a sudden, a mysterious donor, I don't, I'm not sure the amount, but it, back then it was a lot of money, gave to the church to open a theater for the youth in the basement. So there was a stage and a curtain and, a, and lights. And I remember being enthralled by that. And so th that's where I kind of like, you know, got my start pretty much in the basement of St. Anne's Church. <laughs> and you started doing all kinds of productions, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We did Joseph and we did You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And we did, well, we did Sweet Charity. Can you imagine how That's racy amazing. for that time, you know, with yeah. all those call girls in the basement of a church? Hey, That's big so spender. Funny. Yeah. Tell the listeners the cat's story. Oh, here we go. I knew you, you wanted that. I okay, want it so, so bad. <laughs> So when I was a little kid, as I said, I sang, I danced. My mother says that I would be dancing, pull myself up in the playpen and dance like before I could walk. I would be like yelling and singing before I could speak. And I did it. And I did it in school and I did it in the church. And, and I never knew you can do it for a living. And also, I never knew how close New York City was. I was not good in geography, by the way, because it's only two hours away. But I would see these commercials. I remember for Grease and for Pippin, all the TV commercials for Broadway. And I would think, oh God, I wish we were closer. I would love to see that, you know? And finally, when I learned that New York was only like two hours away, I'm like, okay, no one told me that. How um, old were you, 17? 13, 13, 13. 13, you I'm just, I'm joking with you. Yeah. <laughs> So I said, well, I was doing theater and we were, it was in, I think it was the, the theater and the church. And there was a group of us and we had like, you know, hey, it's like a February winter break at school where you have the week off, you know, the people down, your Southern listeners would not know what that is, but up here in the North, you have a winter break, which is like around Valentine's day where you get a week off. And I said, let's go to New York city and see a Broadway show. And they were all like, yeah. And I said, I'll figure it out. Now, back then, of course, no internet, no cell phones. So we had this thing called Show Bus Tours with a woman named Sylvia Cooper who ran it. She was this old theater lady. And you would you'd have to call or mail in your request, which show. It'd be in the paper every Sunday. All the shows listed how much it would be. And it'd be a Wednesday matinee or a Saturday matinee. And you would send in the money in it, it with checks so my friends gave me money and I got a check and I sent it in and then you would show up at a bus stop near you so there was like she did like three or four different bus stops in Connecticut and you'd get on the bus and Sylvia Cooper would give you the grand tour as you were going into New York City she would be and this is where Ed Koch lives and this is where and on and on and on and she'd give you the tickets to the show you they drop you off kind of back in those days Times Square you can drive through like now you can't really drive through it, but um, they would drop us, uh, drop us off near there. And so I remember the first time, it was my first time ever into New York City. I was 13. I was the, the organizer of this group. It was myself, um, about four other kids and two parents who decided they wanted to come. I, I think they just said that because they wanted to be chaperones, but... You know, we were like, oh, yeah, come on. Um, and 
they let us off. And I remember getting off that bus in New York City and just something just, I was overcome with like a feeling of like, I belong here. And the first thing I remember was the smell of the roasted chestnuts. You know that smell? Oh, I do. Yeah. And I don't like that. I don't like that smell. But to this day, when I, when I am in New York and I smell that, it's like that scene in Ratatouille where the guy eats the Ratatouille and he goes back in time where he's a little boy. It's the same feeling. Um, So I had that. And then I remember, I remember everything that day so vividly. I remember what I had on. I remember who I was with. I remember the bus driver. I remember the bus. I remember Sylvia Cooper, what she had on. I mean, it's, it's so vivid. I remember what I had for lunch. We went to the stage door deli. I think it was called on 7th Avenue. And I had a Reuben sandwich. And then mm. we went to the theater. And it was the Winter Garden Theater, that beautiful theater on Broadway. And I remember walking in and going to the mezzanine to the left side, third row back, second seat in from the aisle. I still have the ticket. It's laminated. It cost $35 for a matinee front mezzanine back then. Can you imagine? That's nice. I know. That's a decent price. Yeah. And the show was Cats. And I remember going, well, this is odd because there's no curtain and there's no regular type of stage because it was very environmental. You know, remember how it was all, the, the set was up in the balcony and everything. And the orchestra started. And I remember going, wow, this is amazing. And then the actors came out for the Jellicle songs, the opening number. And something clicked in my head where I went, these people are doing this for a living. Like this is their job. I don't know what I thought it was beforehand, but something dawned on me. This is what they're doing for a living. And I thought, well, yeah, who would want to do anything else in the world, but do this, like paint your face, put on a wig, put on a costume and sing and dance, you know? And so that was the, the whole first number. I was just like enthralled. And then the second scene, and you know, cause you've done cats. Yeah. The naming of cats, which is that it's that hypnotic poem that T.S. Eliot wrote. And it's it, it pretty much the direction in that number is you're pretty much telling the audience that cats are superior and you have better behave yourself. And if you do, you can stay. If you if you don't watch out. So it starts with the cats on Broadway in a big old semicircle around the front of the of the um stage and then eventually it branches out and people started going into the audience and so i thought at that point i remember thinking oh wow why couldn't i like spent five dollars more to be down there downstairs to see the people close up and the lighting was changing and once i said i said the um the the, uh, set was environmental so the lighting is changing and in the corner of my eye i see something crawling along the railing of the mezzanine. And I thought, well, that's strange. What's that? And then once again, the cat came into the lighting. The cats were crawling along the mezzanine rail, right? And you know, those theaters, how they're so jam-packed, your knees are like up against your chest. And so like, I was third row back, but it was, I almost felt like I could touch them. And into the light comes this male cat And I remember the first thing I remember was seeing the sweat coming off of his brow 
And every move he made was so cat-like. It was just something, I was so mesmerized by that. And the direction is at some point you have to lock eyes with someone in the audience and stare them down like, like the cats do and make them feel very uncomfortable. So I could, he's doing the poem and he's looking around, he's looking around. And all of a sudden he locks eyes with me. And he had these green, green eyes, like bright green eyes. And all I remember was everything else in the world disappearing. It's like when, you know, when you only see that one thing and everything goes away. Yeah. I was so connected. And my friends, in fact, I was with one of my friends today, my friend Anna, who was one of the people with me that day. We remained friends. And she tells a story. She says, you just leaned forward in your seat as if you were like hypnotized, transfixed. And it was the most, they were watching me rather than watching what was going on. And the guy did the whole end of naming of cats to me and like time stood still. He finished it, F and ineffable, deep and inscrutable, singular, name, 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 disappeared off the edge or whatever. And I just sat there and from that moment, like a, a fire was lit within me. And I thought that even at 13, not even knowing what that should be, I remember thinking that was powerful. That one that connection between one human to another or a feline to another was so powerful. And I said, at that moment, this is what I wanna do. I want, like my, at that point, my goal was to be on Broadway. My dream was to be in Cats. So that's where the, where the spark lit, you know what I'm saying? And, and to make a long story short, 13 years later, I'm my debut in Cats at the Winter Garden Theater and I played Coracopat and that's the character that crawls along that balcony rail. So I played that cat who was looking at me. So every time I would crawl, I would, I remembered my seat. Of course I remember my seat. I would focus in on the person who was sitting in that seat every night, eight times a week. Because that and was your seat. That was my seat. And I would do, I would, and nine times out of 10, I would be successful. I would make them uncomfortable and they would be laughing. And, you know, every once in a while, there would be a 13, 14, 15 year old sitting in that seat who would lock eyes with me, lean forward, and we'd have that connection. And I would always think, hmm, it's like the circle continues. And of course, you'd finish the show, you'd come outside to the stage door. And back then we didn't have the line, you know, how that now they have those barricades, which yes. I'm sure when we come back, they won't even have that. I'm right. Sure There'll be none of that. Stage dooring. There'll be none of, no stage dooring, which is a shame because that's a part of it, you know. Yeah, um, but it did get out of hand recently. It did. It did. And I, you know what? Eventually it'll come back. Eventually, sure. but not right now in this day and age. Anyways, I would come out and, you know, would, people would be standing out asking for autographs. And of course you're in cats, so nobody knows who the heck you are. So the first question would be, which one were you? And every time I would do a performance where there would be someone in that seat who would stare at me and keep the connection, I would always see them at the stage door. And they would say, which one were you? And I would just stare at them. And then they would go crazy. Like, oh, oh, you were the one who, who, who was looking at me and did the poem. And I said, yes. And they would nine and a half times out of 10 would say, 
I want to do this. I want to, I want to be on Broadway. How, how do I do it? And I would say, well, 13 years ago, I was standing where you were standing, asking the same question to the person on the other side, which was what happened to me. So, and I, and, and I would take it a step further. I would, I'd say, well, are you in town? Like for how long? And the parents would say, well, we're here until, you know, the weekend. So I'd say, come back tomorrow. I'll give you a backstage tour. So I gave a lot of backstage tours at Cats. You were very generous with your time. Well, you know, I, re- I remember the performers who were very generous with me with their time. I mean, I was never invited backstage. So for years, I would always walk by the stage door of the Winter Garden Theater and go, I just want to know what's on the other side of that. So the day that I walked through to sign my name on the call board and perform, I was like, you know, through the roof. So I said, I'm going to give these kids an opportunity and I would bring them back. And I'd, I'd let them watch, watch me put on my makeup and, you know, give them a tour. And we took pictures with the other cats. And I always say, you know, I say dreams do come true. That's my motto. Yeah, that's your, that's your tagline, your motto. Dreams yeah, motto. do come true. Yeah. And you yeah. got to emphasize the do. Dreams do come true. But as you know, because your dream came true too, it doesn't yeah. happen just like mad, like magic, which we tell our students all the time. It's not magic. No. You have to work sacrifice work and the amount of sacrifice that you have to do to get that one little, I call them jewels, Ooh. one little jewel. It's, it's, there's so much sacrifice to get that one little thing, but that one little jewel is worth so much. I think that's why we're such good friends because we both love the journey of having the dream and making the dream a reality. You know, I just, I'd always heard about you because you were doing shows that I was doing, but you were in a cast before me. Yeah. And I heard about you too. I always knew who Michelle Bruckner was. I just didn't, I had met her. Well, no, because same thing. People would say, Michelle Bruckner, you know how you hear names? Yes. Yeah. So you heard my name. I heard your name for years and we never met. We were in the same shows with some of the same people at different times. Yeah. And then it happened. So tell that story. That that one fateful day. So I was out. We teach at the same school and I had left for a little bit because I was exploring the directing path. So I had a a steady stream of directing um, gigs. And so I just, I took some time off and I did that. And that's when you joined the faculty. Mm -hmm. And then I came back and another good friend of ours, I was standing with him near the concessions. I I don't even know what you call it. Was it a concession stand or? It's like a little store that sells snacks. Yeah, snacks and things. Um, And it's in view of the elevator. And I remember the elevator opening up and out comes, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I could picture it right now. This tall, just sexy showgirl walking out with this raven dark hair that was wavy. It looked like when Sheila takes her hair down in the chorus line in a, like, it wasn't royal blue, but like a blue, just primary blue unitard and the highest of tan character shoes. And just came out of that elevator like you own the elevator in the building. And I looked look to our friend and I said, who is that? And he said, that's Michelle Bruckner. I said, that's Michelle Bruckner? Then you came over and the rest was history. 
I looked at you in the eyes when we got introduced and it was the weirdest thing. I felt like I knew you forever, even though we just met. It was like we were friends in that first eye contact. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 100%. 100%. And I and that's so rare. Like I have good I have very good friends in this industry, but that was very it was very unique for me. Like we looked at each other in the mm-hmm, eyes mm-hmm. and then we were just friends from then on out and yeah. like good friends too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like we it, we, it didn't take, it didn't take time to build up. It was like before you, like you were staying at my house. Right. Exactly. Or my apartment rather. I shouldn't say house, but for yeah. me it was a house. Yeah. Cause you had, a, you had this really cool apartment in, in the upper West side while you yeah. were doing cats. How many years well, did you have that apartment? 23 years. And I rented, Holy moly. I rented. And I remember when I first moved in, I was 20, I just turned 21 and the rent was $725 a month. That's a and lot thought, for that place. Though. I know, but I thought, how will I ever afford that? Now I'd be like, oh my God, I'll stay there for the rest of my life for that. But it was cute, right? Little place with a loft. Studio with a loft, yeah. A little studio with a loft. I mean, it's small. And what was up. it renting for when you left? Close to two grand, oh 23 God. years later. It wasn't rent control. I mean, they just went up a little here and there every year. But, you know, I'm just thinking, how do the kids do it nowadays? Well, I don't know how they do it now because I had an apartment in Astoria. And then when I left New York City, I had an apartment in Inwood, um, Washington Heights slash Inwood. And it was pricey, but it was still, I could still afford it. Nowadays, I don't know. But recently, apartment rents are coming down a little bit just because so many people left the city. But anyway, so... You did the Broadway show, but before, mm-hmm. let's go mm-hmm. back just a little bit because okay. you went to Boston Conservatory yes. and then you ended up leaving because you booked yes. the show. I didn't finish. I I almost made it to the end of my junior year. And the, I love the school. I mean, I had the best time there. I learned so much there. I credit them for so much. My teachers, they were great and they knew how to get the best out of you in the best possible way. In our junior year, we they did a, always a musical in the fall, a small musical, then a play, and then a musical in the spring. Well, that year, the musical in the spring was a chorus line, which I was so thrilled about because that was the second Broadway show I saw after I saw Cats. And I, it was very exciting because the person who was setting the show was doing the international um, touring company and they were on a hiatus and he was from the Boston area. So they hired him to come and set the show. So we were getting the original Michael Bennett choreography, direction, the whole thing. And we even came back early from winter break because everyone was like, we'll come back early. And we rehearsed it and I, play, I got cast as Mike. My Costa, who does I can do that. I could see and, that. Yeah, no, I love I love playing that, but the role I wanted to play was Paul, because who doesn't want to play Paul? Right. right? It has such a powerful who, monologue. Oh, the powerful monologue, and that it's just it's an acting role. And, but I got Cass's mic, so I thought, oh, that's fun. I'll do that. And so we learned it, and we learned the whole show. And so that show went up in I think early March, and then the guy who set the show said to myself and the girl who was playing Cassie, you know what? The international touring company is having auditions because they're going back out again and um, they're replacing a few people and it's happening in New York this weekend. It was the weekend after we finished performing. It's coming up this weekend. And I would like to take you to, just to get experience in auditioning 
And I thought, well, that's, well, yeah, sure. So we traveled from Boston to New York City and we went to, it was 890 Broadway. Was that, oh, remember 890? Yeah, I do. Michael Bennett Studios. And Mitzi Hamilton, who was Chorus Line veteran playing Val, the TNA girl. Can I say the words on, on your podcast? No, not no? on this one. No, this is, this is rated G, baby doll. Okay, so P- TNA. PG-13. People can figure it out. Okay, yeah. people can figure it out. You know, Dance 10 looks three. TNA. And part of that original story is hers, true story. She was yep. directing and setting the show. And so I remember she's going She's a good in, director, the, too. Oh, she's darn good. And such a beautiful human being. Yeah, she's I love funny her as you know what, too. I, I, I say to this day, if it weren't for her, I don't know if I would have been in cat. I mean, she, I, I credit her for a lot of my career because she gave me the chance at that age. Well, she didn't really the chance know to dance. Age. Well, I'll tell you about that story. But so I auditioned, I did the dance call and then she said, oh, I understand that you played Mike. I said, yes. And she goes, well, can you, sh-? I said, sure. And I, that, I was what? I was 20 at that today. I'd be like nervous wreck. Back then I was like, hit it. To the piano player, <laughs> and they're like da 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 da, and I did the whole mic thing, the whole the whole number. She goes, "That's great." She goes, "How do you feel about Paul?" I said, "Well, what do you mean?" She goes, "I'd like to see you read for Paul." And she goes, "Well, do we have the do we have the copy the side?" For, I said, "I don't need the side because I knew the monologue." So she goes, "Okay," and I did the monologue for her, like right there. And she goes, "Hmm." And she paused. You know how Mitzi is. She she looks and she pauses. Yeah, she's And then beautiful. she says, can you come back tomorrow for a callback? And I said, sure. And I'm thinking, this is great. I mean, I was so green. I had no idea what was going on. So the next day I go back and we have a callback. I do the dance. And then there are other people in there. It was uh, uh, the producer and the managing people. And, and she goes, now do the Paul monologue. I did the Paul monologue. And it was silence after. And she goes, thank you so much. It was such a joy to meet you. And I said, oh my God, this has been thrilling. And I went back to Boston thinking, I just had a great experience. Never thinking in a million years, I was auditioning. I'm just having a good time. And I went to class the next day and then I was doing a student uh, directed showcase and I was doing that and I could see, I'm rehearsing and I could see my roommate in the window, in the little window of the door. And he's like motioning to me, come over, come on. So we had a break and I said, I have to use the restroom. And I went, he goes, you have to call this person, this casting person called you. And so I went on the payphone. I put my money in the payphone. Was it Mark Reiner? Listeners. Yes, it was Mark Reiner. And I called him and he goes, well, yeah, we want you to come out and uh, do Paul. Can you come to Germany next Saturday? And I thought to myself, huh? And then he told me how much I was going to make. And I was like, huh? And I'm like, I'm in school. I didn't know what to do. And so I said, well, I, I need some time. Well, you got to call me by tomorrow night and to let me know. So I said, okay. So I didn't go back to that rehearsal, by the way. I went back to my dorm and I thought, what am I going to do? So I called my father and he said, did you talk to your teachers? Because he, I could hear the silence. I thought, oh my God, I'm a junior and I'm not going to, I'm this close to graduating and I got this huge job. And I talked to one teacher who was an academic and was pretty much saying, you'd be a fool if you don't stay in school and blah, 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 and on and on, and these opportunities will happen. And I talked, talked to another teacher who was pretty much a performer. And she said, if you don't take this job, I'm going to fail you this semester. She goes, you'll learn more on this job 
than you will in another month and a half of school. And you can always come back. And so that's what I ended up doing. I took the job and I left school thinking I was going to go back. And I went on tour with a chorus line and I played Paul with all these huge veterans of chorus lines and people who had done it on Broadway. And here I am, the 20 year old. Oh, and that's the thing. So Mitzi asked me in the audition how old I was. Now, you know, that's not allowed for an equity audition, but it wasn't because it was European. And I said, oh, I'm 23. I told her. You lied I was to Mitzi. Yeah, I you lied, lied to, to Mitzi. Um, I did. And on when we were on the road in Europe, I said, I have a confession. And I told her and I, and I left school. She goes, it's a good thing that you lied to me. She goes, because you told me you were 20 and you were still in school, I wouldn't have cast you because I would want you to finish school. So I'm like, sometimes it's okay to tell a little white lie like that. But she didn't go to school, did she? No. No, I know. But, you know, things change like that. And, I, and I, was, I had every, I had every, every, every um, intention of returning back to school in the fall because it was a short tour. But I then what happened? I got off that. I got offered a chorus line somewhere else and somewhere else. And, so, and I've been working professionally nonstop in my business ever since, whether it be performer, director, teacher, radio show host. So, yeah, I didn't get that final year of school. No, See? it's true. It's true. You know what? You can still get that degree. You can just finish the credits that you yeah, need. But yeah. if you don't need like no one's asking you, you must have a degree. So, you know, no, the thing is, um, you People always say you need the degree in order to teach. Well, what did I do since I was 21 as my side gig, teach in colleges and universities? I mean, I could yeah. teach in a state university. I mean, but, you know, private, you can do that. Okay. So, William, how soon after Chorus Line did you get cats? Okay. Good question. So, you, you know, when you do a Chorus Line, you don't, you, you don't do it once. Right. I know. There's a microchip. Yeah, so I did like four in a row in different places and through the people you meet and, and then, but you know, the thing is I always still wanted cats and I auditioned for cats nine times, nine times. Wow. And I just, I would get down, I mean, toward the end and then I would get caught and I'd be like, you know, you audition and they never tell you after you get caught, why you got caught. No, so they don't. 22, 23 year old, you're thinking I got caught because I sucked. When really that's not the case sometimes. It's just you're not right for it. You don't match the person, whatever. Or they so, don't need your type in that moment. They need somebody else moment, in the moment. Exactly. But I, no one taught me that in school. I wish they did. I mean, we teach our students that now, but I was never taught that in school. Like that should be part of a curriculum. Like you never know why you're not being cast. It would save so many people like so much heartache, you know. Anyways, so there was this one time where I was, and you know how you would go into a, a cattle call, but then you'd be put on a roster and then they, the, the um, casting director would call you in when they had a replacement. So I would get called in from Tara Rubin Casting, who Tara Rubin, who's the best in the business, just fantastic casting director. So I would get called in and I would go in repeatedly. And sometimes there'd be 10 guys there. Sometimes there'd be 20 guys there. Sometimes there'd be five guys there. And I would never get it. And then one time I, I had hit, as, as we all do in show business, as young actors in musical theater, you hit this wall where you kind of think, okay, I'm going to give up. Maybe you didn't, but I, I, I did at one point where I was like, you know what, this isn't working. I had worked, I had, had good jobs, you know, right out of the gate. And then it was this lull, lull, lull. And I 
came, I was living in New York and I decided to come back to Connecticut for a little bit, like a week or two or three or whatever. And I had a friend from LA who I did West Side Story with, and he was staying at my apartment in New York City. And so he called me and said, you got a call from Tara Rubin. I think, I'm not sure if it was, I think it was still Johnson Lift back then. And he said, uh, and Tara said, we want Billy to come in on Monday for a cat to, to be seen for cats, for Mungo Jerry. And, and, she, and she said to him, make sure that he comes to this audition. So he called me and said, you got to come back. And I said, I'm not coming back. I said, I've auditioned like eight times for them. I keep getting cut. I'm kind of done. I, I, I'm not, he said, no, you got to come back. You have to come back. And I was planning to go back anyway. So I went back to the city on Sunday and he said, you're going to go tomorrow, right? I said, I'm not going. He goes, no, you're going to go. I said, I'm not going. And so he was down on the pullout couch and I was up in you know, my loft. You know, my, I don't think you ever stayed in the loft because I always made you sleep on the couch back then. I was afraid you were going to fall down the stairs. That's why if you had, a, you know, in the middle of the night. Anyways, so in the morning, all of a sudden, someone's up in my loft, like tapping me saying, oh my get God. Up, get up. And I'm like, no. And he said, get up. You're going to go to this audition. And I said, I'm not going. He said, I'm not leaving this apartment until you get up and get ready for this audition. And he, he was supposed to go back to LA that day. So he was going to Port Authority to take the bus to the airport. And so finally, he was just driving me crazy. So I got up. I put things in my uh, dance bag and I went with him because, you know, we're, it was downtown. The audition was, I don't know if it was 890 or somewhere down there, downtown. So we got on the subway. I think it was the one line. We went down and he got off at Port Authority. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go to Penn Station, the next stop, 34th Street, get off, get on the other one, go back home. But I, at that Hi. point, I was all ready and I had my dance bag packed. And I thought, let me just go to this audition. Such so a bitter went, Betty. No, well, eight times, Michelle. So what? Listen. So I went to the audition and I, same. it was like the same thing, went through all the steps. Thank you very much. I get the job. Yeah. See? I See got everybody? the job. So if Don't I didn't go to that audition, I wouldn't have gotten that job. And so I did the road company as Mungo Jerry for a year, a little over a year, maybe. And then I left because road, I just said I had enough of sleeping in different beds every week. And it was hard. Being on the road is hard. It is. People I know. Don't, people think it's glamorous. It is not glamorous. You're in different no. climates. It's you glamorous in Colo- Europe. Yeah. You go to Colorado, from Colorado Springs to New Orleans. Or, or the worst, going from New Orleans to Colorado Springs. When I got off of the road, uh, I went back to teaching and I still had eyes on Broadway because that was my goal. Broadway was my goal. And at that point, you're sort of in the know because you have friends of yours who you did the show with on the road who are in the Broadway show now. So they know when people are leaving. And so I got a like a little like inside tip that the guy who was playing Coracopat was leaving. Now I was Mungo Jerry on the road, not Coracopat. And as you know, sometimes casting people and they 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 have you know one they see you as one thing because Mungo Jerry. For those of you who know cats, Mungo Jerry is like the mischievous kitten who gets into everything. Coracopat's kind of the stoic, mystical twin. So it's a whole different thing. So I called once again, being at that age, like now I probably would never do it. I called the production supervisor and I said, I heard that so-and-so is leaving and I would like to, I didn't even say audition. I'd like to, I'd like to take over. I'd like to play that part. And they told me, they said to me, well, you're Mungo Jerry. I said, well, yeah, I know. But I said, but 
the issue is Mungo Jerry is not leaving. The guy who's playing Mungo Jerry, this guy's leaving, and I want in, and I want in now. And they said, "Well, no, well, you're you're you'll be the next Mungo Jerry." And I said, mm. and I knew the guy playing Mungo Jerry, and he was not leaving. He would never leaving. The idea of leaving. Yeah, he wasn't leaving. Camping yeah, wasn't out. Leaving. He was camping great out. Great guy. Great guy. Great guy. God bless his soul. He's no longer with us. He wasn't going to leave. So I finally said, I really want this job. And they said, well, okay, you have to come in audition. Now, here I am auditioning for the people that the exact same people that I worked for for a year and did a good job and who had no issue with me. So I went in and I went in, there were 40 of us. And I don't think anyone else in that room had ever done this show before except me. Four zero? Four zero, 40, yeah. And I, I, I went through the steps, I did everything. I sang and I'm singing for people who I've had dinner with on the road. You know? Yeah, but that's okay. No, it is. But it was just strange. And and all I got was, thank you very much. Thank you for coming in. And I left. And I had an agent at the time, wonderful guy. He called me. He says, they want to see you. There's a call back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he goes, no, there is. And so, and he goes, I told them, I won't say what the agent said. Anyway, so I went in and it was myself and one other gentleman who didn't fit the physical profile of the role. He had never done the show before. And I don't, I, I don't want to name names, but uh, someone higher up on the chain and they, and that's it. There were, there was no piano player, no casting director. So it was like just the three of us in the studio and we were going through the choreography and nothing I did was right. According to the other side, nothing I did was right. I to the, got to the point where I had done, I could do that choreography in my sleep. I couldn't even balance. I was falling over. And I left thinking, well, that's it. I blew that one. And I had a dog, my dog Daisy at the time. And it was, it was what? It was uh, early April, like April 1st or something. Easter, actually it was Easter weekend. And I took Daisy for a long walk through the park thinking like, okay, I don't know why that happened, but it did. And I, I could learn something from that. And I got back home like three hours later and we had those little answering machines. Remember those, those little yeah. answering machines? Actually, mine was digital at that point. I was being fancy. And it was beep, beep. It was like blinking like you had a zillion messages. And it was my agent calling over and over. Where are you? And he called, we called me Tiger. Where are you, Tiger? Tiger, where? And so I called him back and he says, all right. He says, you got to go in. And that audition was on a Friday that callback, you got to go in on Monday and sign your contract and start rehearsals. So I got the Broadway show. And I remember sitting down going, oh my God, it happened. Did you cry? Finally. I didn't cry. I'm not like I am now as a little old man. I cry <laughs> at the drop of a hat. Or Everybody, he Back cries then, I didn't. for everything. Yeah, I'm he like He cries over everything. Just, oh my God. I'm the typical little old Italian man that I get emotional I get very emotional. <laughs> Back then, I didn't cry. No, I was like stunned. And I remember, and that was in April. I made my debut on April 14th, 1997. And on June 19th, 1997, we, we broke the record for longest running Broadway musical. So I was in it then. And I stayed in it until the final day on September 10th, 2000. Well, it's funny, you know, um, Jillian Lynn, uh, the late, great Jillian Lynn, who was our choreographer for Cats, I was in it at a good time because I was in it when it broke the record and I was in it when it closed. So we had, I mean, she would come a lot like every six months or whatever. But during those times, we had like in more intense rehearsals with her. Yeah. And How old was she when you she, worked with her? 
oh, in her mid-70s. She was brilliant. I mean, people would be scared. She was very tough. She was a taskmaster. And if you read her book, A Dancer in Wartime, Jillian. You gave it to me. Yeah. You understand why. You understand. I recommend that book to any of your listeners, A Dancer in Wartime. I read it last spring at this time when we were in the severe lockdown. Yeah. And it really helped me get through that time period. So she would come and rehearse us. And it was always like, because you know, you know, Michelle, when you're doing a show and a long running show and you're in it eight times a week, you tend to, things tend to start to go sideways a little bit. It's like when you have to bring your car in for a tune up. Every once in a while, you need a tune up, right? So, So you have dance captains and people who are keeping the show in order, in order, in order. But sometimes keeping it in order, in order, in order, in order, you lose that organic. The magic. uh, The magic. And so she would come in and you'd work with her for a day. And she would, like, she would demonstrate, even at that age, in her thong leotard. Yes, work, work. She would demonstrate and, and say something. And it would, you'd feel like, oh my gosh, you felt alive, you know? I did want you to talk about her because you know what? After reading that book, I was kicking myself for not... I auditioned for Cats a few times and once I got down pretty close for Demeter, but I'm kicking myself for not really like dedicating myself to book it because I, after reading that book, I would have loved to have worked with her. She was so passionate about every move in the show. Yeah. It was the beginning of the Jellicoe Ball, and it was called The Ritual. And there was a, in the lyric where it says, the Jellicoe moon is shining bright. And the step was, you're stepping with the right foot out to the side, and with the right arm, you're scooping something and lifting it up. And I was always taught, scoop and lift. And she said to me, well, what are you scooping? And I said, well, I don't know. And she goes, well, that's the issue, the issue. You're scooping moon dust. And as you're lifting it up, you're seeing all the sparkles fall off your palm of your hand. And I did it. And I was, I said, oh my goodness. It was like, it was wonderful to work with her. Wonderful. I'll never forget it. Yeah. That book is fabulous. And we both highly recommend it to any young performer because what she went yeah, you through post in it World on War II. On your website. Oh, unbel- the fact that she can I get will. through that, the fact that she can get through what happened to her in England in World War II while she was pursuing her dream of dance. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. After that, did you have a kind of a letdown after that? How did your career go on after that? Yeah. Well, when we when they announced closing, which I was not happy about, but I wasn't sad about it because at that point my body was hurting and I had some injuries. And eventually I would have had to make the decision to leave, which I didn't want to leave my dream. The decision for me, I was like, oh, thank God, even though I was sad, you know. But and that mm-hmm. in the last and we were we were supposed to close in June. And then it went on until we were extended till September. And those that probably was the most exciting time because the show was the hottest ticket in town. Every celebrity in the book showed up. I remember I remember because it was it was closing. Yeah. And yeah. I remember doing green eyes, you know, green eyes in the beginning where they have the eyes and I would go over to the back and I remember flash the people with my eyes in standing room and there's John Voight in standing room. So nice. I went down the aisle to, and I saw one of the ushers when I went, I said, John Voight's in standing room, try to find him a seat. And it was, he was bringing his little grand niece or whatever. 
and they found him a seat. So that was interesting. I was like, oh my, John Voight's in standing room. So it was very exciting. And so when it, everyone, I watched everyone freak out and kind of scramble to try to, people jump ship, you know, in the last three months, they were getting other jobs and jumping ship. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And I was trying to do the same thing. I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I realized, well, wait a second. I have something to fall back on. I've been teaching. I have a job teaching. And I said, I, I was tired. My body was tired. And I said, you know what? I'm going to enjoy the last few months of this and take it in as something that I wanted to do from the time I was 13. And I just said, I'm not going to audition. And then I said, I'm going to teach and I'm going to teach for a year. And in that year, if I want to audition for anything else, I will. And if I don't, I don't have to. And I ended up not auditioning. I ended up teaching. And so it, of course, a year later, September 11th happened, 911, and the world changed. That June, I decided to, I need to leave the city for a bit. Even though I still worked at the school, I would commute in, but I, I just had to get out of the city. So I came back to Connecticut. And so that was 2001. And then that's when I started exploring with the directing. And I got some directing gigs at colleges. And then I started restaging Cats with my dear friend, Dana Salamando, who I did, she was my rumple teaser on the road. And she's now award-winning director, choreographer in uh, Los Angeles area. And we started booking gigs, gigs, restaging cats. And so I did that for a while. And then a brief moment came back where I got back into performing professionally, locally, professionally. And I did, I was the MC in Cabaret. I was Hysterium and Forum. I did some reviews. I did a Roger and Hammerstein review, a Cole Porter review. And I was having a great time. So it was like, I was still doing what I wanted to do, but I was still teaching and I was trying to find my way. And then that pretty much went full head on into my teaching career after that. Mm -hmm. Although I have dabbled in the performing arts in the past few years, a little bit. Yes. Uh, last year, Billy was in this fantastic production of a show called The Dresser, a play. And it was directed by Broadway veteran Carolyn Kirsch. And everybody, it was Broadway caliber. It was in this little theater in Connecticut, Oddfellows Playhouse. It was a Broadway caliber show. Who was the guy who played the actor? His name is Peter Lafredo. He's a local actor. He played um, Sir, who's the Albert Finney role, for those of you who have seen the movie. Um, and I played, I played the dresser. And it was Carolyn, who's amazing. She was in the original chorus line. She's done like 13 Broadway shows, who lives out in Connecticut now. She, and I, I don't think she would mind me telling this, but she, she had cancer. I was directing a production of Gypsy. And I said, Carolyn, you're going to play Tessie Tura. And she said, well, she was going through chemo at the time. She said, how could I do that? I can't do that. I can't. I said, no, you're going to do it. I'll have, a, I'll have an understudy ready for you. She said, well, you brought me back into the theater. So now mm. I'm going to do the same thing for you. And I'm like, oh, darn, payback is going to be something else. And it was because that was hard. That was hard. That show was hard. I mean, I, you know, well, and I, had, I had no singing. You. I had no singing, no dancing to fall back on. And yeah. it was in a, in a, in a, in a theater where I, could, where I could spit on someone. That, that's how close they were, you know. That's it. I like that theater, though. Yeah, it's cute theater. It was perfect for that show. I mean, that was a great play. Mm -hmm. I really had a yeah. good time. And she I did a, a fantastic lot. job. I faced my fear. I love being directed by Carolyn. Um, I love working with Peter and the, the other actors. And I had a great, great time. Would I do it again? Oh, I don't think so. 
Well, that was a very large role. What if yeah. you played a smaller role like yeah. Herbie or something in Gypsy? No. Herbie? What do you mean? I can't play Tulsa anymore? Honey, that <laughs> ship has sailed. <laughs> I play Tulsa and you play Louise. I wish. It was a dream of mine to play Louise, but no, not even at the Fox in Atlanta could we pull that off. <laughs> yeah, that ship has sailed. I'm sorry to but say. you can play Rose and I could play Herbie. Well, that's what i was trying to say honey bunny yeah anytime listeners anytime i try to get this one to perform he runs away although we did do a fantastic job at a benefit we were together and we we sang and danced and did like a, this little stand-up impromptu yeah, act we were like that Mickey was really Rooney fun. and um ann miller i loved that night everyone i want to thank billy johnstone for coming on the showgirl tip of the day podcast this is the season finale. We will start season two in September with some brand new episodes. Thank you so much for your support and for listening to the first season of the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, showgirltipofday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>